The Whole Health Cure with Dr. Sharon Berquist, the podcast that brings you inspiration and skills for living a healthy and fulfilled life. Welcome to the Whole Health Cure podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sharon Berquist. On this podcast, we explore the science and provide inspiration and skills for living your happiest, most fulfilling, and healthiest life. Today, I'm joined by Zach Bush, MD, who's a physician specializing in internal medicine, endocrinology, and hospice care. He's an internationally recognized educator on the microbiome as it relates to health, disease, and our food production systems. Dr. Zach founded Seraphic Group to develop root cause solutions for human and ecological health and extend his passion for educating the global community about topics such as the state of our soil, including the need to eradicate toxins such as glyphosate from our farming chain and the importance of gut-brain communication as vital uh, part of our overall health and well-being. Dr. Zach, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me on. So I want to start by talking about your training and how you have gotten into the area that you study now, because you're one of the very few triple board certified physicians that is studying the gut microbiome. So what was your path? Uh, very nonlinear. Uh, <laughs> um, I dove into uh, allopathic Western medicine uh, with my uh, finished training at the University of Colorado, then University of Virginia, and uh, UVA, uh, specializing in internal medicine, and then subsequently endocrinology and metabolism. I increasingly got interested in how disease was happening rather than what was happening when disease occurred. And so I had found myself into that classic Western medicine paradigm of big hospital tertiary care practice where I was seeing end-stage disease every single day in the ICUs and admitting, you know, oftentimes the same patient five or six times in a month with the same condition over and over again, you know, really getting an up close and personal look at the reality that this three and a half trillion dollar healthcare system that we've created is not creating any solutions that are meaningful to a patient that really wants wellness in their life. And it was through that kind of, you know, continued search for what is a fundamental truth that would be useful to my patients who are increasingly changing. You know, I think the patient behavior and perception between the 1995 and 2005 changed radically. I think we were shifting from this kind of post-World War II mentality of doctors are in their ivory towers are so smart and I just do whatever my doctor says to the explosion of the internet, to new sources of information for people, and maybe the cultural shifts around that leading to a very empowered you know, patient population by 2005 that was really asking for information that I had never been taught it. I didn't know anything about the nuances of nutrition. Uh, I think many people who know nutrition well would argue I knew nothing about nutrition. Um, I think that uh, they were coming with questions that uh, were stumping me as far as like, how do you reverse diabetes? And I trained at you know, third best endocrine program in the world, supposedly, and nobody mentioned that you just reversed this condition. And so it was daunting as a physician, I think, in this you know, internet era to walk into every sem- single exam room instead of espousing my wisdom to be faced with all of these questions that I felt unprepared uh, to answer. And the further I looked into that, by this time I was you know developing chemotherapy for you know, rare endocrine cancers and stuff. And in my chemotherapy development, I was coming to some startling same conclusions that there had never been a case of cancer in human history that had been caused by a lack of chemotherapy. 
And so that, you know, fundamental realization was suggesting I was going down the completely wrong intellectual pathway to find a fundamental solution for something like cancer or diabetes as it is. And so I realized that I had been taught and trained in a world that didn't believe in healing and had really been taught and trained in a world that believed that disease was inevitable and that the best we could do would be to change the course of that disease process. And so all of our in vitro research of billions of dollars of research that are poured into cardiovascular and cancer and you know mood disorders and everything else every year that all that research has the belief that you can't actually prevent or fix that disease from happening and so you're instead trying to modify the course of the the path of physiology the, the broken physiology trying to modify that or or somehow disadvantage the cancer cell or disadvantage some cellular pathway uh, so that you can stabilize uh, the decline that's inevitable in aging and disease. As I started to dive into nutrition, it became obvious that there had been a, a 40 years of, of science that had emerged in parallel with you know my training, but not integrated into my training. And it was developed in huge academic institutions, Cornell, Cleveland Clinic, you know, some of the best, you know, most respected universities in the world had allowed a few practitioners to delve into the science of nutrition and how it could actually reverse chronic disease. And that, you know, became really a new passion for me. So by 2006, while I was doing chemotherapy in the lab, in my nights and weekends, I was reading about, you know, the power of nutrition and starting to really open up my own eyes to the possibility that um, no matter how good my chemo got, it was never going to be as good as nutrition at its fullest potential. So I uh, tried to start a nutrition uh, center at the University of Virginia, and this was you know, 2008, 9, 10, and, and turned out that the biggest blockade to success at that time was actually our dietetics uh, unit, and our dietitians weren't ready for somebody coming along saying, I'm going to start a whole plant-based system of, of nutrition at, at the university, which was flying in the face of what the dietitians and nutritionists have been taught about how you feed a diabetic. And so... I was coming with a complex carbohydrate diet for diabetics, which seemed like the antithesis of logic to dietitians who'd been taught that we need to be a high protein and low, low carbohydrate diet, which now we know, you know, at least, you know, the cutting edge science knows for the last 20 years is the wrong thing. Like you don't want to do a low carbohydrate, high protein diet. That's extremely toxic for vasculature, damages kidneys. Uh, it proceeds with some fatty liver that kind of reinforces the diabetes. So, we're now realizing protein is not a, a good fuel source uh, for a human body, let alone somebody with, with uh, a metabolic process such as diabetes. So, yeah, I've been reverse engineering that. So when I realized in 2010 that I wasn't going to be able to start the clinic that I really wanted to start in academia, um, I was starting to come to terms with the fact I was going to have to do this in the private sector, which felt like a complete loss of my entire career. I'd spent 17 years in academia and thought, that I would never be able to teach again and never be able to do research again. I just, there was a long grief period and uh, a period of sheer terror of starting my own clinic and being fully responsible for my patients 365 days a year as a, a single practitioner seemed impossible. And uh, lo and behold, the next three years working with these patients in rural Virginia and one of the most impoverished and biggest food deserts we have in the state, um, it became my best academic experience I'd ever had. And my patients became my colleagues rather than my patients. And I started listening to my patients better than I ever had before. I stopped you know, espousing my wisdom and started being willing to learn. And that changed my entire you know, scientific viewpoint over the next few years. Wow, what a journey. And you know, I think a lot of people that 
believe in um, lifestyle medicine and integrative care and in self-care and empowering our patients, you know, have this path of kind of meandering frustration, um, kind of encountering really the status quo and, and figuring out solutions to communicate the information that's out there um, to lead people to the root cause. So such a fascinating journey. And so you started this nutrition-based private practice um, in rural Virginia, and you're, you know so much of the work you do now focuses on soil health and the gut microbiome. So how did that practice lead you down the path of you know, studying planetary health and, and human gut microbiome? Very good. Yeah. So it turned out to be the failure of the plants that led me to the planet. <laughs> so, over, the, over the first couple of years, I was, you know, I'm definitely kind of a go big or go home personality. And so my patients were, had to be all in and they were going to, you know, juice two pounds of kale a day. And I was going to just get so many nutrients in their body that disease was going to become impossible in their bodies. And so I, you know, uh, maybe a good salesman and charismatic with my patients and, you know, it was get them so excited about this. And it was with extraordinary frustration that the outcomes were what they were. A third of my patients, it was miraculous. Like it was so exciting, like to see a patient who's on six or seven medications and failing um, over the course of a couple of years, continue to gain weight with every med thrown on, their weight gets worse and shift that to this reality where we're peeling medications off at, to the rate of, you know, six per month. And, you know, within eight weeks, they're off all their medications. The blood sugars are better than they've ever been. And, you know, it was just like so exciting to see those success stories. But to my dismay, there was a good third of my patients that would like slightly improve and then plateau. And then there was another third that were really getting me frustrated, which were they were just getting worse and worse. And so the more kale I poured into them, the higher their inflammation went. And that was the antithesis of what I've been taught about nutrition. And so in that journey, uh, my colleagues and I started to dive into questions about, is there something wrong with the food now? You know, is, is, the, is there something fundamentally different about the kale now than it was 20 years ago when all the science was starting to be created? And it took a very, you know, narrow dive or very shallow dive into the nutrition literature to re realize, in fact, the food has changed dramatically. A tomato today has almost no resemblance to a tomato of the 1970s in regard to its nutrient profile and density. And uh, you can take that into the cruciferous vegetables, which are things like broccoli and cauliflower and uh, the, the famous Brussels sprout has all these anti-cancer compounds in it. Those anti-cancer compounds are missing from the modern uh, Brussels sprout comparison. So this, this journey was taking me into those questions of like, why, what happened to the food? Why is all this stuff suddenly missing? What, where did the medicine of our food go? And so we uh, started talking about soil and I hadn't looked into it yet. And one of my colleagues brought in a 90 page white paper on soil, which blew my mind. I had never seen a 90 page white paper on anything. I couldn't believe somebody would write a 90 page, so, you know, dissertation on soil. Uh, which at that time I just thought of as dirt. I didn't realize it was, you know, the complex living organism that I now see it as. But in flipping through that article, there was a you know, molecule in the middle of that document that looked very similar in its three-dimensional you know, structure to the chemotherapy I used to make. And that was the aha moment that said, oh my gosh, we've been looking into the plants as our source of medicine since the beginning of Chinese medicine 4,000 years ago. Is it possible there's a deeper story in the soil itself? And that was paralleling an explosion in science around the microbiome. And when I found out that those molecules that we had found were being made by bacteria and fungi, it opened up a whole closure of the loop of why we were finding that 
lack of microbiome in the gut was predisposing to very specific cancers. You miss this bacteria in the gut, you're going to get breast cancer. You lose these bacteria, you're going to get prostate cancer. Nobody had figured out how those were connected. Those seemed like very different uh, correlations in science, but not causation. And this suddenly closed the, the loop of a possible causation where if you lose the microbes that produce these, these carbon molecules, each differ. Each species seems to make their own, own variants of these little carbon snowflakes. And so these huge variants, these little carbon crystal snowflakes, when you put them into concert and tissue, you get this huge communication network effect. And that's what we proved out over the next couple of years. I started my own laboratory in my clinic, and then that's grown into a large biotech operation. And we're you know, more and more deeply exploring the relationship between soil, the microbes there, what they produce and how they get that into plants. And then what happens when your gut microbiome, which it's its own soil system, absorbs those nutrients and turns those into new bioavailability and new medicinal you know, features as it hits your body. And then backing up out of that, what happens when we create an environment where we are faced every day with antibiotics from our physicians, from our food system, from our water now, even our rain is full of antibiotic now. And so uh, you know, that reality is starting to realize this is why we're seeing these explosions of disease, autism, one in 5,000 to one in 30. You know, you got these extreme, you know, rates of climb. We doubled our rates of cancer in our population in just 20 years. Uh, men are now at one in two uh, prevalence of cancer in their lifetime before they die in the United States. And women are right behind us at one in three. So it's just this explosive, you know, cr chronic disease epidemic starts to make sense in only in the context of what have we done to the microbial environment of the soil and the gut. Yeah, there's so many levels on which that this is so fascinating, you know, there's, you know, one paradigm shift of really looking at, you know, instead of medicine as medicine, but food is medicine. And if you really taken it one step further and now soil is medicine and that maybe we're not even looking deep enough, um, which is just such a fascinating paradigm. And the other is just this connectivity between us and the earth and why we should care, right? A lot of people don't, make that connection of why it's so important to care about the environment, right? Because we get our food at the grocery store and um, that connection with the soil and, and the source of our food is lost because of where we obtain our food. The What you're learning about the soil and the microbiome, I want to kind of deep, a little bit you know, deeper into that because understanding soil health, can you talk a little bit more about how the soil is, you know, the ideal and the how we've kind of depleted it of, um, you know, kind of a lot of the richness and the nutrients that it can provide. Yeah, and I'll keep drawing parallels between soil of, of, of the garden and soil of your gut. They really are very similar ecosystems. And so, in short, as we start to understand soil, we need to also kind of understand it in the context of this word microbiome that's being thrown around with a lot of uh, cavalier activity in women's journals and all the way to peer-reviewed science journals uh, out there. Like It's amazing how many times a day that consumers now are hearing the word microbiome. I just saw that Dove has got a new campaign where they're now the microbiome-friendly soap, which is actually impossible. But you know, if our soap companies are realizing they have to embrace the microbiome that they've been trying to kill all these years, we know that this is a, a consumer fad. And so the microbiome has been, you know, usurped by the probiotic industry to our own harm uh, as understanding that maybe there's just some good microbes and you need those. 
that's not the microbiome. The microbiome is actually primarily not even bacterial. Primarily, it's you know these these other much larger kingdoms. The parasites are about 10x the, the biodiversity of the, the bacteria. There's about 30,000 species of bacteria. There's about 300,000 species of parasite. And then there's another 10x jump to the fungi. There's 5 million species of fungi. And then there's a extraordinarily explosive logarithmic shift to the viruses. And so there's 10 to the 31 viruses, one with 31 zeros after it, uh, viruses. And so when you start to look at that ecosystem and we start to come to terms with the fact that right now in my bloodstream, I've got probably over a dozen uh, retroviruses in my bloodstream that are synergistically working with my biology to make me healthy. Retroviruses became you know, discovered and famous for HIV. And we think of them as this horrific, you know, disease process, when in fact, my body is in symbiotic relationship and probably necessary relationship to uh, these, these microbes. And so the viruses all the way down to important parasites down to what we think of as pathogenic uh, bacteria, like the Lyme spirochete that, that we blame Lyme disease on. So it turns out those spirochetes are super abundant in our mouth. And we've got over 12 different species of, of spirochetes that are natural to the microbiome of the mouth. And so as we continue to realize just the sheer scale and scope and biodiversity of the soil microbiome and ultimately the gut and human microbiome, we have to come to terms with the fact that we are not against the microbiome. The microbiome is trying to support human health on every single level. When we do damage to that microbiome, we can get overgrowth, imbalance, dysbiosis kind of effect. And that's where we start to, to, to make some scientific mistakes of thinking that there's a pathogenic process at hand. If the Lyme spirochete suddenly becomes dominant in our physiology, we think, oh, the Lyme just infected us and is causing a problem. Well, many people will get bit by the ticks that carry Lyme and never develop any symptoms of Lyme disease in their lifetime. And in fact, when you test people for antibodies to Lyme, you find that most of the people that have the syndrome of Lyme disease don't even test positive for to ever being exposed to that thing. And a lot of people that, that don't have any symptoms do test positive. And so you've got this you know, bizarre scientific mistake where we keep blaming the microbes with this germ philosophy that we have, not realizing that there is a role for every microbe. And we find the same phenomenon in soil. Like when we wipe out a, a soil ecology by plowing under a whole field, the first thing that crops up is virus, uh, is the uh, weeds. And the obvious thing now is that the weed is not the problem. The problem was you destroyed the biodiversity of the soil. And now the weeds are coming in to try to restore and start the process of repair and healing. I now see the same thing for a virus or a spirochete or any bacteria or a parasite. They're going to show up in a damaged terrain to actually start a biologic diversification going again. When we see candida, we think, oh, that's just, you know, you're, you're infected with candida because there weren't enough bacteria. Well, the reason the candida is there is because the, the fungi and the yeast always show up in the highly damaged system to start enough nutrient production such that bacteria can come back into a damaged environment. And so we need to start looking at the microbes of the soil, including the flora and fauna that are there, the, the, the bugs and the plants that are growing in that soil, maybe in response to the damage. And so we need to stop looking at them as invasive or weeds or invasive bacteria or pathogenic bacteria in the hospitals and start to understand that the terrain is adjusting to our adverse behavior, which is killing the biodiversity of soil and, and gut. And in response, we then further attack these bad guys to kill more microbiome. And so we need to stop the warlike, you know, mentality and philosophy and start to shift our lens to say, how is the microbiome, A, supporting us with biodiversity? And then when biodiversity is 
depleted through exposure to antibiotics and the like, how does the microbiome shift or respond? Or if we put a toxin into the environment that the body needs to, to deal with, such as sulfur compounds, our body doesn't have metabolic pathways for sulfur-based compounds. We, we only deal with carbon-based you know, fuel systems. Turns out the spirochete prefers sulfur-based compounds, and it's going to do a really good job cleaning sulfur compounds out of our body. And so I'm not going to be surprised at all if in 10 years we find out that Lyme disease was not a, a Lyme pathogen at all. The Lyme was there to help clean up a toxicity event that we did to the entire population when we dumped sulfur compounds into our food systems. And now we have to get that out of our body and the spirochetes are called in to help us you know, clean out that, that compound that we can't clean up. So these are just some broad brushstrokes to say, what is soil? What is microbiome? It's a complex ecosystem that believes in biodiversity and thrives only in a biodiverse environment. The more species and the more genuses and families involved, the better you're going to do. The more balance you're going to have, the more resilience you're going to show. And we can still show that in soil systems. So you have resilience against drought. You see these huge fires in Australia burning bigger than they've ever burned in, in recorded history because over the last 10 years, we have completely destroyed the soil ecology of Australia through extraordinary uses of herbicides that have even exceeded that in the United States. So we have so damaged that environment, the soil could no longer contain water. And we've had you know, this huge dust bowl going on and massive drought-like conditions that set the table for those fires. And the same thing, I think, in the gut, the, the fire that burns in the gut of the American consumer right now is chronic inflammation and autoimmune disease. And so we have you know, the highest rates of autoimmune disease, which is, of course, coming from the immune system that sits just deep to that soil of your microbiome separated by one cell layer. And we, we now know as that collapses, you get that permeable gut or leaky gut. You now overwhelm that immune system and eventually it's going to make antibodies to the outside world and that will cross-react with your own body to form these autoimmune conditions. The thyroid is the most common one right now in some studies even 10 years ago showing one in four young girls at the age of 12 or 14 already showing antibodies to their own thyroid gland. How does that happen? It's through this loss of self-identity at the immune system that is the symptom of a collapse of the microbiome or our soil in, the, in, the, in our gardens and gut. What are the biggest contributors to us losing the richness and biodiversity in our soil? Pound for pound, it's Roundup. And so the Roundup is now, you know, when I started talking about this six years ago, nobody knew the word glyphosate. But now, you know, it's daily in, in NPR or whatever news you're listening to, you hear, you hear the word glyphosate. It's the active ingredient in Roundup. But as of 2007, when it went off patent, it became the active ingredient in almost every weed killer on the planet. And so now all five of the big chemical companies in the United States uh, produce glyphosate and the majority of glyphosate on the market is actually produced in China and uh, put onto the world agricultural market there. Turns out that glyphosate as a molecule, um, we're now pouring around 4 billion pounds of that chemical into our soils worldwide. That is a major problem for the larger ecology and human health because it's water soluble. A toxin should not be water soluble generally. That's a bad idea on a planet that's 70% water by surface area and and thrives on a water cycle. Bodies that are 70% water, plants that are 70% water, animals that are 70% water. And so we put in a water-soluble toxin that now gets itself into every stage of the water cycle. And we find in, in ecologic testing now that 75% of our rainfall and 75% of our air we breathe is contaminated with Roundup or glyphosate. And so that is an extraordinary penetration into biology on the planet with a single molecule. Turns out that molecule has been patented as an antibiotic, antiparasite, 
it kills the microbes. And so when we start introducing antibiotics at the, at the level of 4 billion pounds a year into the global ecology and wipe out that microbiome diversity, we're going to see pandemics of viruses, we're going to see emergence of uh, you know, endemic pathogens like Lyme and things like that, because we so perturb the soil terrain of the world that we are seeing this weed-like behavior of organisms as they try to respond to this massive damage. We can't, as we lose that microbial diversity in soil, we see uh, the lack of resilience in plants as they become weakened in their immune system. And so they're prone to pests and to invasive weeds. They cannot protect themselves. And so then the chemical companies respond for, with more herbicides and pesticides to try to you know, boost up a weakening immune system. And then we see the collapse of human health as we destroy the microbiome in the soil of our gut. We can't even extract the nutrients and the amino acids we need for good protein structure and everything else. And so we start to miss misadapt and we start to dysfunction. So we become vulnerable. And then our pharmaceutical industry eagerly responds with more antibiotics, more, you know, disease management tools that disrupt normal enzyme pathways uh, so that they can do disease management rather than get at the root cause of the solution, which is we need biology to happen on the planet. Health happens in biology. I live in Virginia and I also spent a lot of time in Hawaii. And in both of those very different ecologies, if you are not actively beating back nature, it takes over. Nature is so abundant and what it wants is biodiversity and what it creates all the time is biodiversity. And it wants it in such abundance that you literally cannot see a speck of soil. It is just life, 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 life. And as soon as you go to an agricultural system like the Midwest, you realize we have denuded, we have literally torn life off the surface of the soil, leaving it dead and vulnerable to the elements. And then we pump in a bunch of inputs, chemical or uh, fertilizers, so that we can get one stripe of green monocrop for 10,000 acres and then leave the rest of the soil exposed and damaged and drying out and not retaining water. And so we become prone to flooding, we become prone to drought, we become all this vulnerability. Same thing is happening in your gut. You are getting dehydrated because you're without the gut microbiome, you can't absorb water correctly because you don't have an intelligent gut barrier. Your toxins enter quickly, you become weakened, you can't can't hydrate. Water is the best detergent for the body as far as cleaning toxins and metabolites out of your cells that need to be washed out. As soon as you start to get dehydrated inside a cell, your aging accelerates. And so microbiome collapse, lack of a, an intelligent filter, and then dehydration are like the three steps of the chronic disease and rapid aging phenomena that we're seeing happen in our population today. And to try and break out of this cycle, you know, when I hear everything you're saying, which, you know, just kind of makes me think, okay, we're depleting the soil. And of course, then even trying to consume plant foods. So, you know, there's so many levels that I think people try and get healthy. You know, the first is get rid of the processed food that actually has the sulfites put in. When you switch to, you know, more whole food, and now even the whole food doesn't have the phytochemicals that you hope that it will have for disease protection. And so, you know, brings us back to this connection of what can we do to help the soil health so that we can help our own health. Um, you know, to me, the obvious, of course, is, you know, get rid of, you know, weed killers and maybe more organic farming. Would that help us restore the soil or what are things that we could do to protect the soil? Yeah, as soon as you stop human activity on a piece of soil, it starts to heal. Um, but there are ways to accelerate this process. And, and so, you know, the fastest way to recover ecology on the planet is for us to continue our rapid march to extinction. 
looks like we got maybe 70 to 100 years left and that's probably enough for planet earth if we don't change our behavior and you know if we are going to change our behavior mother earth immediately embraces us it's, it's ridiculous how fast she wants to heal everything and in my labs we accidentally found you know kind of this microbial carbon snowflake as an antidote to that roundup phenomenon at the biology we didn't anticipate any of that it, it was a totally kind of happy accident that we kind of discovered this. I was still very much in my cancer mindset when we started working with these molecules. But what we found, you know, over the next couple of years is it was having a huge impact on our patients, much different than it was happening in a Petri dish because it was having this effect on, on reversing that, that roundup phenomenon in the body. And so we, we had to figure that out in retrospect through our patients and what they were telling us rather than through a proactive effort. And so, Ultimately, our patients did become our best colleagues and they really taught us what was going on in their body. And it kept bringing us back to the reality of biodiversity on the plate, biodiversity in the soil that grew what's ever on your plate is going to be the pathway to success of human biology. And we find the same thing now. I started a nonprofit for training farmers uh, or supporting farmers who are making the transition from chemical farming to regenerative agriculture, which is a big leap uh, past organic agriculture, which actually is not a very good soil management. Uh, process at all. But but regenerative agriculture really focuses on rebuilding biodiversity at the plant level with cover crop species and, in, in, you know, 16 to 32 species of cover crops and stop plowing, which is so interesting. Farmers have been trained to plow since 900 AD. And so for 1100 years, we thought that was the main, the best tool for expanding farm productivity. Now we find out that the plow is the worst enemy of the microbiome. It destroys the fungal elements, the mycelial beds, the communication in the soil systems, nutrient delivery, all of this. And so you have to stop disrupting the microbiome with plows. Then you need to stop spraying to kill those microbes and you need to let the biology recover. And when they, when you do that, we can see in a single year, you know, 20 year recovery of the soil, you know, sort of recoveries that, you know, back that farm up 20, 25 years before they started broad spraying these herbicides. So really exciting how fast mother nature wants to heal. And I would say that's the same thing for a patient who's able to put themselves in a biodiverse area without toxins. The body knows how to heal so fast. It is intrinsically built into us to heal. And so that's not something that should be owned by a doctor or, or a pharmaceutical company. So what we focus on, you know, as a, as a company is then, you know, how do we accelerate that process? And we're finding that the more of these carbon snowflakes we put into the mix, the faster everything recovers. And since a damaged microbiome only makes a few of these carbon snowflake variants, there's an opportunity to accelerate that. So we draw carbon snowflake variations from 60 million year old fossil soil to accelerate that process. And so we started that in the human gut with just liquid supplements that you take before meals, explosion of information to the microbiome and the gut, intestinal and, and immune system of that individual. And they start to handle nutrients much differently with an intelligent, you know, uh, Velcro system that keeps that gut laced together and reverses that permeability injury that's caused by Roundup. We maybe missed that part, but we've demonstrated in our laboratory that the mechanism by which Roundup does so much damage to the human directly is not just by killing the microbiome, but by disrupting the Velcro that holds our gut and our vascular system and our blood-brain barrier and our kidney tubules. All of these critical barrier systems are, are eroded very rapidly within minutes of exposure to glyphosate. And that's at levels of glyphosate that you would see in a typically conventionally grown sweet potato or beet or any of these root vegetables. And so we are constantly being exposed to the amount of you know, necessary toxin to create a leaky sieve event. And if we take these carbon substrates from the microbes of, of eons past, there's enough biodiversity there in information to pass on this extreme acceleration of biologic healing. And we see protein synthesis, 
repair the Velcro happening in six to eight minutes from exposure rather than months or years down the road. And so the speed at which nature wants to and is capable of, of healing once it has unfettered access to information is extraordinary. And I think it's very humbling and telling that we are engineered not to live by some human communication system of, of healing. We live by a microbial communication network of healing. And that changes science as a whole because every single Petri dish growing there at Emory University or University of Virginia or elsewhere is a sterile Petri dish with human cells that we believe should be working as an isolated species. And that's why we don't believe in healing. We've never seen it happen. When we start adding back the, the carbon substrates of the microbial world, we get to see healing happen in a Petri dish, which has never really been seen before. And so that's really just changed my whole philosophy on health as a whole is we are going to die early and, and go into extinction as a species if we keep thinking of ourselves as an isolated species and if we keep treating medicine and health as some distillation of you know, protection and, and against the outside world. And I think there's parallels to our politics. If we keep building bigger and bigger walls to isolate from the world, we're going to, the empire's done, you know? And so we, we are at the cell level, just as we are as peoples, uh, connection and biodiversity is critical. And if we don't see that socially, politically, and from a technologic agricultural system to come in alignment with the understanding of the importance of biodiversity, we'll disappear quickly. Well, that's, you know, such a fascinating connection about the microbial agents being, you know, the agents of healing and, and, you know, really resonates with me, you know, as with, you know, a lot of what you said about the innate ability of our bodies to heal, just as you're saying, you know, mother nature's incredible ability to heal and recover. And, you know, and I think I often say, you know, the best thing I can do for a lot of my patients is let their body heal. And um, I think doing less is usually the way to do the most. So it's really fascinating. You know, when you're talking about the carbon snowflakes, you know, my first thought in my head was, well, who should be taking? And then I quickly realized it really should be everyone because how ubiquitous the exposure is. Are there ways, you know, if a person doesn't have an autoimmune disease, but wants to know where they are on the health spectrum in terms of the diversity of their microbiome, are there ways to measure how healthy or damaged your gut is or your microbiome um, and, and I say this knowing the incredible limitations of microbiome testing for any individual because I think you know, to what you said earlier there's a lot of extension of science that's been commercialized around probiotics and, and what's marketed as microbiome but is there anything that is measurable that's meaningful yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think, you know, the way in which I've come to see health is basically we have a reservoir of coping mechanisms. And these are anti-inflammatory compounds. These are enzyme pathways for detox and repair. So we have this like reservoir of repair and coping. As we, you know, age or as we get exposed ourselves to a modern food and agricultural system, that reservoir depletes quicker and quicker and quicker. But interestingly, you, it's not until you reach some threshold of deficiency that you start to see a disease process really awake. So I think there's been a huge lack of attention to the, the science around how do we measure that reservoir so that we can start to recognize 20 years before cancer that this person's reservoir is drying out and we need to make changes so that the reservoir can fill back up so they never get chronic disease or, or cancer. And so that's the shift we need to make from, you know, kind of a, a prevention uh, kind of methodology or metrics kind of standpoint. But 
until we get to that pathway of really being able to measure that reservoir, there are things that your physician can measure uh, to kind of show your current state. And those are inflammatory markers in your urine are an easy way to do that with, you know, urine markers for inflammation. We can look at uh, inter the uh, interferon uh, kind of levels and different cytokines and stuff like that in the urine uh, that can be measured. Uh, and an easy one that we did in our clinical trial recently when we were doing the carbon snowflake science in healthy individuals, we were looking at inflammatory cascades within their thing, and we were looking at different uh, enzyme pathways uh, within their system. Uh, and one of the ones that, you know, is just so easy to measure is glyphosate now. There's a lot of labs that can measure glyphosate in your urine. And it's startling that in our study of, of 45 people, uh, all healthy, relatively young, we couldn't find a single one that didn't have glyphosate in their urine. And so, you know, it's starting to get startling where you really can't find somebody who's, you know, clean enough uh, such that they, they're walking around without this, this constant injury of that molecule. So uh, right now, I think it's almost easier to, to find the offending agents than it is to understand where your reservoir is at from a, like a blood testing thing. So what our, our clinic now does is we've given up on blood testing as kind of showing us the reservoir and we now have moved to impedance monitoring where we can actually get a sense of the intracellular hydration of a patient in real time. And we find that to be the best measure of how deep is your reservoir. Um, optimal health, uh, when you do this impedance monitoring, the test is called a phase angle. Um, but when you measure a phase angle, it's kind of like getting an EKG. You have those little sticky leads that stick on your wrist and then on your ankle and you lie flat and you measure the impedance across the body. And then there's an algorithm that puts in your body weight, and your age and all these things. And you end up with a phase angle measurement. And an ideal phase angle is in the 10 to 13 range. And that's what you see a healthy young, you know, 12-year-old teenager who's thriving and, you know, at the, at the maximum capacity of healing. And then contrast that to the typical adult walking to our clinic that has a phasing all around seven, you know, somewhere in the six to seven range. And that's somebody coming in for a wellness visit who has no diseases. And then you contrast that to a cancer patient coming to my clinic, who by and large will have a phase angle of less than five. So you're kind of at the four to 4.9 range for phase angles. We now find that it's very rare to find somebody who has cancer with a phase angle less than five or greater than five. And so what you want, and we know that death happens around a phase angle of three and a half. So if three and a half is death and 10 is optimal health and cancer happens at four and a half, you can see how empty that reservoir has to be before you can accumulate the amount of in injury and lack of repair processes that's necessary for cancer to occur. And so we measure a phase angle for initial visit with every one of our patients. So we can just get a sense of where's the tank at. And somebody feels great at six, but if we can get them to an eight, that's totally changed their reservoir ultimately of how their, their, their cellular kind of vitality and cellular coping uh, capacity is. And, you know, with aging, there is loss of just water when a lot of tissues like connective tissue. How much is environmental exposure? How much is it that going from the you know, healthy teenager to the adult is the aging process. Is there a way to kind of differentiate between the two? Yeah, this is a huge topic. Um, I've done a couple podcasts specifically on hydration for this reason, um, but there's definitely methodologies in a very short nutshell. First thing you need is barriers that can transit water across them. So that healthy gut and vascular barrier systems, you know, that's where the carbon snowflakes come in to repair that system very quickly so that your hydration potential increases. When the Velcro is damaged, you can, your colon is trying to do the primary job of absorbing water. 
But if that membrane is damaged, not only is it defective in its ability to pull water across, water will leak back out before it can leave the lymphatic system. And so that leaky gut that we think of, we always think of like, oh my gosh, all this stuff is leaking into the gut, into the immune system. Well, you're also leaking out. You're also having a hard time retaining water. Now, if you do the same thing to a kidney tubule, which we know that glyphosate does damage both to that gut membrane and the kidney tubule and the blood-brain barrier, suddenly you can't hold on to water at the kidney either. So if your gut can't absorb it and your kidney can't hold on to it, you're going to start to, to dehydrate quicker. And that's what, definitely what we see in an autistic child. Autism is a severe leak syndrome where they, they lose the capacity to clear toxins. So they have higher heavy metals than their brothers and sisters and parents in the same household, eating the same food same environment, and yet they are toxic and their others aren't. Not because they were born toxic, but because they got so leaky, lost their water you know, solubility and the ability for that water to detox their body, and they started accumulating heavy metals, different toxins within the, the body, and they couldn't clear the metabolites of normal cellular things, so they get this disruption of neurologic function. And so that's kind of an accelerated version where of a 90-year-old, right? Your 90-year-old with dementia is going to have many of the same sensory processing deficits that, you know, somebody with autism has. Um, and so we've accelerated aging, I think, by eight decades now to the point where our children are having, you know, one in four, one in six children now with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, one in 30 with a full-blown autism spectrum. But then you add on anxiety disorders by age two. Uh, recent pediatric seminars, at the whole seminar was starting, was how to start antidepressants on children under the age of two. Couldn't even believe, I couldn't even, like, wait, what, what? Like, that's what we're doing now is teaching how to get infants onto antidepressants. Like, it's just unbelievable how, you know, injured that brain is due to this combination of, you know, lack of hydration and leak. And so we just turn them into sieves. And so first fix those membranes. And so right now our best tool is, is those carbon snowflakes from the microbiome. I hope other tools develop over time to, to do that. You know, there's some amino acids that have been used, things like L-lysine has been used uh, as an effort to do that, but those tend to take months before, uh, before any changes are visible. Whereas those carbon snowflakes, again, from the microbiome rather than the human side, can take minutes to, to do, do their work. And so uh, microbial plug-in, and so for all my patients, we'll start them on carbon snowflakes, but then I get them outside because this is sterile stuff that we're giving. There's no microbes in there. It's just the communication network of the microbes of ancient uh, soil. And so we get them outside so that they can repopulate their microbiome in diversity. And so I have them go out to the Great Smokies or the Blue Ridge Mountains or whatever you know, national park that they have nearby, spend a weekend or ideally a couple of weeks you know, burying themselves in the nature microbiome of the flora and fauna of the most untouched environments they can find, and then switch environments, go out to the beach and spend a couple of weeks there try to engage in natural water systems to get that microbiome. So it's really about, you know, getting back out into mother nature to allow her to see the body with as much microbial diversity as possible. This is the opposite of the probiotics, which keep narrowing our microbiome. If you take billions of copies of the same three species every day, you're going to end up with corn, soybean, and, and wheat planted across your whole microbiome. So yes, we went and planted a, a monocrop across the United States and killed the soils and the earth. And at the same moment, the same three decades, we, we created the probiotic industry that now sells $42 billion a year of monocrops into the guts of humans and animals around the planet. So it's a devastating mistake that we made to allow a tiny bit of science to usurp our idea of biodiversity in nature. And so we're really, I have every patient stop probiotics now, that, you know, Cell, which is a very revered uh, peer-reviewed journal, uh, recently published a couple of science articles showing that the the probiotic after antibiotic exposure 
will freeze the, the microbial diversity just as severely as the two weeks of an antibiotic did. And so that's pretty devastating to find out that we're telling all of our patients, oh, if you took an antibiotic, go take a probiotic. Well, the probiotic's going to freeze the ability for that patient to recover their microbiome. In those same studies, we saw that within 30 days, if a placebo was given, they recovered their microbiome. And so it's a pretty extraordinary reality that we created not only a fake industry that was going to damage the microbiome, we also froze the natural capacity for nature to reseed that microbiome. Gosh, you know, I feel that there's so many questions I want to ask and so many directions to go, but I know our, our time is up and I'm so fascinated by how you have really made that connection between how we are essentially creating problems, you know, health problems, planetary problems, and then all the kind of commercial interest into providing solutions instead of actually getting rid of the underlying problem. And it just seems as though um, we're directing so much energy and resources as a country and globally in the wrong direction if we want to um, you know, improve human health and certainly sustain the planet for you know, future generations. I want to give you, you know, just some um, time to, if you have any final thoughts or words, things you want to share with our audience, you know, perhaps things we should be doing, maybe ways we can be more active in um, vocalizing the direction that we need to go or any thoughts that you have for our listeners. Awesome. In short, it's connection. You need to connect to nature for sure, but you also need to connect to more human beings. Right now, our farmers are our most isolated and highest suicide rates that they've ever had. Uh, we need to reach out to farmers and, and tell them that we are in support as consumers. We, we're going to demand healthy food for our kids from the whole system, which is going to allow those farmers to make this difficult transition from monocrop corn and soybean that never goes into a human body directly and only goes into processed food and feed for animals and like. We need to tell those farmers, we want to support you in that jump. And so farmersfootprint.us is our nonprofit. Um, it's a, an incredible opportunity for you to get engaged and support this movement. Um, it's, you know, reaching out to farmers across the world. We have huge contingent in Australia. I'm spending about four months in Australia this year uh, to really try to reach out to, to the damaged ecosystem there and, and bring all our resources to bear there. Uh, there's over 1,200 farmers in, in Australia that are already making the transition to this regenerative agriculture, and many of them have been doing it for 20, 30 years. So I'm very excited by the fact that there's farmers all over the world that are ahead of the curve and ahead of the scientists and ahead of the doctors and understanding the importance of bringing biodiversity back into our agricultural system and back into the food system as a whole. And so I'm, I'm thrilled to know that the farmers are ready and willing to be our advocates and, and to be our greatest resource as a nation. Uh, but we need to support them as consumers. And so you can do that by farmer's footprint, but then I want you to do it locally. Go to a CSA, go to your farmer's market and not just buy from them. I want you to know them, ask them how they're doing. How are your kids, you know, how are your pets doing this week? Like, please get to know these families because they need to feel seen and respected so that they stop this suicide, you know, epidemic that we currently have. And, and we really need to reconnect. And so connect to farmers, connect to people. And remember, nutrition only works yeah, to its fullest extent when you're sharing it with somebody. Uh, incredible studies in the blue zones around the world have shown that all the blue zones don't actually eat the same thing. They have totally varied diets. They eat totally different things in Japan where they live for in those certain little communities or China or uh, in the Greek Isles where they live over 100 years. The reason those blue zones happen, we find out again and again, is because community is still intact. And so the secret to longevity is not just eating healthy food, it's sharing healthy food. And so remember to invite somebody over tonight for dinner and share a meal. And you'll find out that the emotional connection over that will change the way it is really going to change your genomics as to how you're going to you know, develop 
a relationship with the nutrients you're consuming. If you are stressed and isolated and lonely and sitting in your car eating your meal again, the way, you can only metabolize that in, in inflammatory pathways. That kale salad from McDonald's eating alone, you're not going to have any benefit from that. And so you need to get out of the car. You need to start moving. You need to start breathing. You need to get you know, connected back around the table, hopefully on the backyard to engage with your community and listen to them and, and understand where they're at and start a social, social fellowship around food again. It's our most you know, powerful connector is food. And it's the one thing that can always break down, you know, concerns, anxieties, and boundaries of social interaction. The food always brings the, the connection to another level. And so share your food and uh, share, share life with your farmers. And that would be my invitation to a better life. That's just brilliant. Um, I thank you for everything you've shared. The connections you've made are, are really just brilliant. They come from such a profound understanding of these different components of soil and human health and, and the effort in your energy in making a difference of taking this knowledge into a form that is making a difference, you know, through your nonprofit, through your clinic, through your, your tech company. Uh, just thank you for the incredible work that you do and the difference that you're making. I, um, you know, hope that we can support anything you do and I appreciate everything you've shared today. Awesome. Thank you so much. There's an educational website too, ZachBushMD.com that just goes into pregnancy and different phases of life and what nutrition looks like in those phases and stuff like that. So lots more to, to be learned and shared. And I just appreciate you and your entire audience. So thank you for getting the news out there. Thank you. The Whole Health Cure is brought to you by Emory Lifestyle Medicine and Wellness. For more information about wellness assessments, classes, and other resources, please visit our website, emoryhealthcare.org slash livewell. This material is copyrighted by Emory University.